Hey everyone, welcome to the Open Inquiry podcast. I am Danilo Zubaryev. So today I'm speaking with Allison Melia about relationship abuse. Allison has a degree in sociology and has worked in social services for over 11 years. And currently she is a partner assault response facilitator at New Directions, where she conducts group therapy sessions for individuals who have been charged for domestic abuse offenses. We go into quite a bit of detail on domestic abuse, and as you'll hear, Allison has an enormous wealth of knowledge about the dynamics of this subject. We discuss the gender demographics of domestic abuse, various strategies and habits for healthy communication, defining and identifying abuse, and the relevance of childhood abuse, self-regulation, addiction, cultural norms, empathy, mindfulness, and accountability. I found this conversation incredibly informative and helpful to me personally, and I truly believe there's something beneficial in here for everyone. And before we jump in here, I want to mention that each and every one of us is surrounded by relationships. We continually form relationships in many directions, whether or not we even want to. Aside from romantic partners, you will build relationships with coworkers, roommates, friends, family. In fact, any encounter with another person is a possible relationship and a possible instance of abuse. But it's also an opportunity for love. So while this topic is difficult to think and talk about, it's incredibly important as it applies to an enormous realm of our daily lives and habits. So without further ado, here is Allison Melia. Today I have with me Allison Melia. Allison Melia, thanks so much for joining me, Allison. Welcome, glad to be here. So you and I met quite serendipitously, I would say, just like a couple weeks ago, super coincidentally, and then you were talking a bit about where you work, and I was thinking that you have this really interesting wealth of information and knowledge about an area that's important, but no one really talks about that much. So I really thought it'd be great to get you on here. So just to start, it would be great if you could describe your background, what you've been doing, how long you've been doing it for. Yeah, sure. Uh, My background, I guess I have a degree in sociology and I have worked in social services for quite a few years, I guess, well, over 10 years at least. And I'm also a yoga teacher, so certified yoga teacher and um, I have been working as a partner assault response facilitator here in Ottawa uh, for the Ottawa area and surrounding for over five years now. So what we do is we work with people, men and women, who have been charged with a domestic offense, and they basically are told that they have to take a court-mandated program, which is the program I run, uh, out of, uh, we run it out of Counseling Family Services, and it is called New Directions. So every city has, most cities have a partner assault response program. Um, a bigger city like Toronto would have probably more than one. Uh, because we're the only one for Ottawa, and surrounding area, we're quite busy. So generally, you're working with the perpetrators of domestic abuse and not the victims so much? That's right. So the perpetrators come to us uh, for this 12-week program. Now, we do have what's called an outreach part of our program. Uh, we that they're separate from the actual facilitators. So I don't do this outreach work, someone else would, our outreach worker, and they would be contacting the victims uh, via phone for uh, support and providing support services 
uh, that way through email, through phone, and we do send them a package with resources and so on and so forth. Um, if the victims want the support, they can have ongoing support, uh, weekly, bi-weekly, whatever works for them. Uh, and some victims choose not to have that support. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I was wondering, I think maybe to begin, just to get a characterization of the demographics of the mm -hmm. abusers. And I also wonder, do you have an idea of the general process of how they end up getting, um, I guess the word would be prosecuted? Uh, is it usually the like partner um, calling the police or is it a family member, friend, something like that? Yeah, so it could be we get all types of, of situations coming to us. Mm -hmm. uh, usually I'm, I'm, you know, I have the police reports in, in their files with me, so I'm mm -hmm. familiar with with what happened um on that side of things and uh the police reports are not always accurate we have to keep in mind that it is usually the victim's statement and not um, a statement is not received uh, from the perpetrator so we get a lot of people coming in feeling that they've been treated unfairly because they haven't been heard uh, by the legal system or by the police so that is a point of contention at the beginning of the program uh, for a lot of people um, it can be anything from the victim calling the police, uh, a family member of theirs, uh, a bystander, a neighbor. Uh, it's all kinds of different scenarios arise and, and happen in, in these instances. Okay. Um, as well as just, you know, the sort of intensity of the abuse could, is really on such a wide spectrum mm -hmm. from anything from you know someone throwing their phone and breaking it and getting charged with that uh to you know uh real physical violence mm -hmm. so just to give you an idea of the range of um of offenses we we're looking at and dealing with yeah that's one thing that that crossed my mind as i was sort of preparing for this mm -hmm. i figured there'd be a very wide variety of cases and just situations mm -hmm. and and everything is every case is so individual and unique in its own way surely uh, i can only imagine um uh, one thing i'm wondering as you mentioned that the perpetrators usually they will uh understandably uh state that their side of the story wasn't really um dealt with and engaged with do you how do you guys engage with that do you generally like hear it out and then say well we can move past this and start trying to resolve things yeah, so that's a that's a tough tough hurdle to get over. I I prime I work with men, so we have one group. I'll just state that now to make that clear. So my experience has been working with men. There's often we have about six groups now, double that twelve because of social distancing. We've got a hybrid model of doing half of our groups online through Zoom and then the other half in person. We've got one group for women a week, whereas we've got six groups for men just because of numbers. So I'll refer to men because throughout this maybe because that's my experience, but I want are your listeners to keep in mind that women are charged and this isn't uh you know a gender just just men thing women mm -hmm. do do abuse as well um 
So at the beginning of the program, yeah, if I have two or three guys who are upset about the system and the way they've been treated, it can really throw the direction of the group off. And we uh, sometimes I think this need there needs to be a whole other group for a support group for people who um, are just frustrated with the system mm -hmm. and um, because it's just so common. And I have to, unfortunately, at the beginning, first session, I'll allow them some space to vent. But then I'm reminding them basically that this program is about accountability. And um, now that they, ha they have to be here, they're in the program. And the point of the program is to focus on you know, abusive behaviors that they've used in their past, whether it be at the time of the referring incident or at some other point in time in their lives. Uh, and to take ownership for that and start to build self-awareness around that and what leads them to use those kinds of behaviors. So once we get over that, I mean, some guys will really push and bring it, continue to bring it up, just have to, as a facilitator, constantly redirect them to focusing on themselves and what they can control. Because we can only control ourselves, really, we can't control uh, and I can't, surely I can't change the system. Mm. Um, and dwelling in that place and the victimhood place is really a disempowering place to be. So I do my best to try to get them out of that headspace. Yeah, and get absolutely. them to recognize that it's really not helpful to mm. them. Um, and it's really not the place, I guess, to do that. I mean, it, it's helpful, I think, for them to be heard and maybe their feelings to be validated at the beginning, but to dwell on it and to continue to talk about something we have no control over is just pointless to the program. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. It would be delicate, but it sounds like that is the most sensible way to really reorient things. Um, I also wonder, as you mentioned this, do you find yourself dealing with, since you're dealing with mostly or exclusively male uh, clientele, do you find that they will um, sort of attack your gender and, and say that you don't understand their perspective because you're a woman? Yeah, so funny enough, like we try to, so at the beginning of, beginning of each group, we preferably would have a male and a female co-facilitator. So I'd be co-facilitating with a male for the first hour of the group. Mm -hmm. And the first hour, we, we basically educate them on the tools of the program. Mm -hmm. The second hour, we split them up into smaller groups. And I would be alone with my quote unquote smaller group, which could be about 15 men because our groups are so large. Mm -hmm. um, and funny enough, most of the time I get the opposite. So I do like to bring that up right from the beginning and recognize that I'm female, I'm coming from a female perspective. Um, and, you know, and also we could do a better job at um, our, our content is very oriented toward heterosexual couples. Um, so we do tend to work one on one with with gay or LGBTQ plus um demographic because they might not feel comfortable in the group. So um, a lot of men say they prefer to have a female co-facilitator, uh, I guess, because they feel more comfortable opening up. Uh, some men would prefer a male. Uh, and I think it just helps for me to point, point it out right off the bat that First of all, I'm female. I recognize I can't fully relate with your experience. Second of all, I always 
tell people I'm not here as a relationship expert and I am definitely not a relationship expert. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm here, I'm a, I'm a good facilitator and I'm a good group therapist. So right. those are my skills. Um, I learn from them and I tell them that. Um, I learn from the group dynamics. Um, we are here to learn from each other. Uh, I've learned from the program a ton. It's a great program that's been put together over the years and it's evolved over the years. Um, and yeah, so hopefully that takes, I don't want to have a space where it feels, they feel that I'm sort of above them in any way, um, or that there's any sort of hierarchy, uh, so that there's no judgment involved there either, um, on my end. Yeah, so that's all part of sort of building and creating that safe space at the beginning of the program. Okay, that's good. And Mm -hmm. I guess I'll have to bear in mind that you're not a relationship expert here because um, <laughs> it's so easy to start digging into the specifics of how to manage relationships generally and their relationships are so unbelievably complex. I feel like every time I deal with any new relationship, be it a friendship or a family member relationship evolving or a romantic relationship, it always is extremely complex and nuanced and detailed. Um, so yeah, the specifics of that, we'll, we'll get into it a bit but we'll try to be general, I suppose. Um, and uh, before we get there, I have one other question about the demographics here. Do you, I wonder what you think, especially because you have that sociology background, I wonder if you think that there's a social stigma that influences this this disparity between men and women, because you were mentioning you guys have one group for women and six for men, so it's about a one to six ratio. Um, mm. Do you think there's a social stigma against perhaps heterosexual uh, men reporting on female partners abusing them? That certainly seems like some, I've heard that claim. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. definitely. Um, you know, and we talk about uh, with with the, my groups uh, who are male, uh, we do talk about, you know, social stigmas around, um, because some of them bring up, well, she was being physically abusive towards me. Mm-hmm. And so I reacted. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to, I validate that. And we acknowledge that yes, men and women can both become abusive, both verbally and physically in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I do try to point out and ask them, you know, we talk about abuse and the fact that it's about the effect on the other person, not necessarily the intent. Mm -hmm. So you might not intend to hurt someone uh, with your behavior, uh, but if they are hurt, that's what matters. Um, And I also, you know, if I have a guy saying, well, she was She was pushing me. Um, She was blocking me from leaving the room. She wouldn't let me leave. So I had to get my hands on her and and move her. I often ask the question, you know, were you scared for your physical safety when she was, you know, pushing you or blocking you? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, not all the time. I'm not saying that men don't get scared of Mm -hmm. of women. There can be, I'm sure this does happen, Mm -hmm. that they are really scared for their physical safety, especially if she has a weapon or is is larger than him and stronger than him. This does happen. But I do like to ask, were you scared? How did you feel? Like, what was the effect? Mm -hmm. And then ask, how do you think she felt? So we, we really work on empathy, which is a skill you have to build. And it does 
um, demands some high level processing. Um, and it's a skill that not everyone has developed throughout their life. So we really work on them getting into uh, her thoughts and feelings, um, or at least trying to guess. And, you know, oftentimes the answer will be, yeah, well, yeah, I think she might have been intimidated by me, you know, or scared, possibly scared. So that's something we really look at. Um, but again, um, yes, I do probably, there are men who don't report and there's a lot of cases that go unreported. So where men are being abused, um, you know, both verbally and physically. And so it's just as important of a topic for victims of abuse who are male. Yeah, I would very much like to discuss empathy in a little more detail later on if we have time. Um, mm -hmm. One thing, uh, bouncing off of what you're saying there, I came again, uh, I, I came across this sort of social response to males claiming abuse against them myself because I wasn't sure how I should bring this up because I don't want to frame myself as a victim or anything, but I was in a relationship mm -hmm. that I think could potentially be reasonably described as abusive. And it was certainly mm -hmm. characterized that way by my friends. And there are a couple of interesting things I noticed from that. Firstly, after the, the relationship had concluded, when I told people about it, and if I opened up and really tried to say that, yeah, it was, kind of, it was abusive, um, mm -hmm. oftentimes the response would be confusion. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think there were about two or three times that instead of getting immediate, you know, concern or care, the response mm -hmm. was, why were you in that relationship? What, what were you doing there? And I don't know if that's a common response for women when they're talking about their uh, the abuse they've dealt with, but it was a little bit odd that I people were confused because to me it was so obvious why I was still there. You know, I wanted to make the relationship work. I cared about her. Yeah, you love her. this person. Of course, yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. but I would get this confused response and I wonder if that's due to a social stigma where it's this idea like, you're a man, you can just leave. Like, you don't, yeah, you're not trapped not a because you're deal. a man. Uh, I don't know yeah. if this is legitimate though. This is mostly just anecdotal personal experience. But no, yeah. it's, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, I think men, men do go through this and are, are in abusive relationships where they're being, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things going through my mind as you bring this up. Um, narcissism spectrum of narcissistic tendencies. Um, and the empath attracting one another. Mm. And that can be on both, it can, doesn't matter if male or female, right? Mm -hmm. um, then there's also, uh, what was I going with this? I'm just trying to find my train of thought because so much has come up. I'm yeah, glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. um, Take your time. I guess the questions I would ask your, if I were you to ask yourself would mm. be, um, you know, how did you feel in that relationship? Mm -hmm. And what, what were the abusive behaviors? How did it impact you? Um, you know, was this person willing to work on it? And we teach assertive communication. So it's basically communicating um, in a way that asserts your needs and boundaries without being verbally abusive 
back. And, and one of the points of the program, and just to, to bring this up, is we used to be open to voluntary clients who wanted to come in to just improve themselves as a partner, um, which I think this program, which so many guys say, I wish I would have had this in high school or, you know, in my early 20s. Uh, I wish I would have known this stuff then. But we, one of the points of the program is to broaden the definition of abuse. So often when we hear the word abuse, we think physical violence, but there's so much more, right? There's um, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse. Mm -hmm. We look at coercion and control, and this really takes a toll on someone's self-worth, someone's mental health, um, and so that's really important. So we want people to leave the program understanding um, and, you know, that abuse is so much more and that and so that they're more aware of their behaviors and more mindful of how they interact in a relationship going forward. Mm. Right. Um, and that. That comes with learning how to self-regulate, right? Self-regulation. What your what are your triggers? Mm -hmm. um, and then we look at something like how how are you? Because sometimes when you're in a relationship that is abusive, you if you don't have the emotional regulation skills, because I myself have been in relationships where I feel were abusive as well, right? And so for myself earlier on before uh, taking this program, taking this program, giving this program, see, this is how much I've learned from it. It's almost like, I feel like sometimes I say, you know, alcoholics who have recovered are the best at leading an AA group yeah. or supporting and running groups. I feel like I'm a recovered, <laughs> I don't know, person who's been in struggling toxic relationships and, and so that I can relate in that sense. Mm -hmm. But, um, I'm still responsible for my reaction, right? And we look at the difference between reacting and responding. Mm -hmm. And when we're reacting, our brain is in fight, flight, or flight, fight, mm -hmm. flight, or freeze mode. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're acting from our amygdala, our old brain, and our whole prefrontal cortex is offline. So we can't think rationally. And that's when we often say and do things that we might later regret. Mm -hmm. Right. So even though the person is being abusive towards us, sometimes in our reaction, we can also get abusive. Mm -hmm. So we want to learn how to regulate our emotions. And um, Tara Brack, who is, a, I believe, is a psychologist and meditation teacher, teaches something called RAIN. Um, it's an act uh, stands for recognize, allow, investigate and nurture mm -hmm. when it comes to. So you recognize you're triggered, you allow the feeling to come up without reacting to it, which is really hard to do. Mm. Investigate. So ask yourself questions um, about it. You know, why am I feeling this way? What's bothering me? What did this person say that's bothering me? And nurture. So bring in self-compassion. Maybe spend some time with yourself before responding. Sometimes it takes a time out and communicating, listen, I can't talk about this right now with you you need to take some time on my own and come back to it so that you can respond in a place of reg of regulation right? yeah i will say that um from my experience with that relationship i feel like m the way i engage with anger has completely changed this is something i intend to talk mm -hmm. about more in, in my youtube channel because i used to get angry easily and it became clear to me through my experiences in that relationship that 
uh, anger always made everything worse. And mm-hmm. now at this point, I, I never see a, a useful, uh, a good reason to get angry in any situation. It's pretty amazing. Uh, just my mm-hmm. mind totally reframed anger as uh, consistently counterproductive. So I don't bother letting myself react like that anymore. So I think rain very much connects to that too, though I never really explicitly thought about it that way before. Um, one other thing I w- I'm thinking of as you say this is um, uh, you mentioned the difference between the effect and the motive. And in my experience in uh, with abusive relationships, I, I remember if people were trying to tell me the relationship was abusive, my immediate response would be, yeah, but I know for a fact um, he or she, whoever the person is in this situation, uh, doesn't mean to be doing harm. It's an accident. It's it, they're they're not their best self at that moment. They afterwards there is some regret. I'm sure that I, they're not the same person at that moment as their best self that I've seen in other instances. So I wonder um, how often is it that the perpetrators of abuse don't know that they're being abusive and it, it's really completely unintentional. Is that usually the case? Oh, um, so it depends. Sometimes it is the case. Um, I wouldn't say usually, but mm. I mean, often can be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. You're, so that's very empathic or empathetic, I should mm. say. It's pathetic of you and generous of you to be saying that about that ex-partner, right? Mm. But it, you need to be coming at it from a place of an internal locus of control like how is this making me feel and do i want how does it feel to be treated this way so in assertive communication you would say listen when you and you choose a specific behavior she was using towards you like i'm just gonna make something up Hmm. when you scream at me and call me names it makes me feel really hurt i need you Hmm. to stop that like that's a boundary for me and then if she was to cross that boundary again and again then it's it comes to a point of you choosing to walk away and that would be your responsibility for if you were to stay in that relationship longer you're knowing that this is not changing then it's then becomes you know you're responsible for for making that choice Hmm. so you want you want to walk away from a situation before it becomes worse if it's not getting better see what i mean like that's where it both victim and our perpetrator can Mm. both take responsibility and take action Mm. and and agency over themselves and that's that's a tied to self-worth often Mm -hmm. and sometimes we get in these what's called trauma bonds where um we're with a partner who's fulfilling something that uh, or it's mimicking a relationship that we had in early childhood with a caregiver right that that there was some unhelpful or unhealthy pattern there that's it feels familiar and it's high chemistry Mm. um but sorry i don't think i answered your question so yeah so sometimes we have men who unintentionally are just very reactive and they can't you know, it feels like an out of control experience. Other times we do have men who are more calculated and and it's about power and control for them. Mm. Um, And that again, comes from a place of deep insecurity, even though that they might be at a point, not be at a point of enough self-awareness to recognize that, Mm. but um, they need to feel like they have control over that other person. Okay. And it's intentional. Okay. Interesting. So, 
So yeah, this really gets down to, I guess, a big chunk of this conversation that we should be having, which is identifying and characterizing abuse. So mm-hmm. this, I'm sure, is incredibly complex, but already there's so much interesting and important information here that you've mentioned. But just to begin, how would you define abuse more generally? Is there, is there a way that you define it for your clientele? Yeah, so it's any behavior with, that has the effect of hurting or controlling someone else. Okay. The effect too, and we talk about effect all the time. Okay. So if you've hurt someone else's feelings, if you've uh, made them feel stifled or trapped, unintentionally or intentionally, it's abusive. Mm. Okay, yeah, that, that's a helpful way to orient, orient it, just thinking about effect primarily. I think it's a helpful way mm-hmm. to simplify it because mm-hmm. I feel like in a lot of cases, it's easy to get wrapped up in the um, – causes and, and motivations. And, and usually there's a complicated mixture, I, I can imagine, of mm-hmm. motivations that are uh, contradictory at times. So that can make it more confusing. But just thinking about what is the effect of the behavior in this case. So then the next question would be, how does abuse happen? What are the common causes or influences that lead up to it? Well, that's a loaded question. But so. um, yeah, common causes. I mean, <sighs> A lot of it stems from childhood, people's childhood wounds, lack of self-awareness, someone high in narcissism might tend to be more towards using behaviors that are abusive, someone who can't or who has a very reactive nervous system and doesn't have the emotional regulation tools, Mm -hmm. Um, addictions can play a part. So someone who's in active addiction um, can obviously, you know, act in ways that are not uh, not healthy. Mm-hmm. And so there's all sorts of, there's also cultural, right, cultural um, components to this. Uh, people coming here from other countries where certain behaviors are not, you know, viewed as abuse or viewed as something that would be considered an offense. Mm-hmm. a legal offense and then they come here and all of a sudden they've been charged and you know they're in shock and they've been pulled away with a no contact order and they can't mm-hmm. see their their wife and children um so yeah there's it's, there's all kinds of reasons um but a lot of it stems back to childhood and what you are role modeled um and the beliefs and expectations you developed about relationships throughout your life. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I think it would be helpful if we went through each of the things you kind of mentioned there and broke them down down in a little bit of detail. So you mentioned childhood, uh, self-regulation, addiction, and culture. I can imagine, I can see how each of those has its own unique relationship to abuse. So starting with childhood, how how is it, what are, what are the mechanics of childhood trauma influencing later abusive tendencies? So children who are just, you know, witnessing or in earshot of um, even parents just arguing. So we're just looking at yelling. Um, doesn't there doesn't have to be any physical violence necessarily for the there to be a, a, a serious impact on a child's developing brain, um, and this has been proven. So. 
even a child growing up in a household that you know just feels unsafe and is unpredictable someone has an out of control temper that could they could lash out at, and it doesn't so children who are the indirect um are at an indirect sort of place where abuse is happening between a father and mother, and it doesn't necessarily have to be physical, the impact on that ch child's development is just as bad or worse than direct abuse. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, that's something that's astonishing to me. So, uh, and also the younger the child is, the more sponge-like their brain is. Mm -hmm. So, People think, oh, it's a baby, you know, they're not going to remember, which is true. They're not going to remember and they don't have um, the developmental capacity to understand what's going on. Yeah. But their nervous system is syncing up to the nervous systems of those around them. Yeah. So if cortisol is going off in their bodies, that's going to impede their brain development. Yeah. So that's when we can later see things like, you know, acting out in school. Uh, behavioral issues and mental health uh, mm -hmm. disorders okay. or issues, struggles. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, that's why we do, you know, if you can't make the relationship work and if you're unhappy in your relationship and if you've tried, then it usually, even though this is another trauma for children to go through their parents divorcing um, in itself, it's yeah. almost like that damage that that will do is the lesser of two evils of right. two parents staying together in this toxic dynamic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, there's something called ACEs uh, by Nadine, uh, Nadine Burke, Dr. Nadine Burke. ACEs are um, adverse childhood experiences. So mm -hmm. adverse childhood, there's about 10 adverse childhood experiences experiences and if you have a score of four or more then your your chances of developing you know heart disease cancer mental health issues um struggles in relationships in adulthood skyrockets mm. right okay. so and these adverse childhood experiences are things like divorce having a parent who suffered with a mental health issue um having parents fighting in the home often, um, uh, neglect, right? Mm -hmm. uh, physical or emotional abuse from a parent, um, moving um, places, so a lot of instability, uh, that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, so that, yeah, that definitely helps characterize things for sure. And it's something mm -hmm. that I think is a little bit counterintuitive as well. I think mm -hmm. very often the assumption is that if you witnessed abuse as a child, your 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 perspective on what is abuse changes and you you don't realize those things are abusive which i'm sure that plays a role too but i don't know if people realize so much that witnessing abuse genuinely damages uh just psychological development it just it inhibits yes. psychological development in significant exactly. ways yeah. so important to know mm -hmm. that and so important again when we say the word abuse i'm not talking about hitting punching kicking mm -hmm. i'm just that i'm talking about just yelling or arguing mm -hmm. in an unhealthy way because there are healthy ways to argue mm -hmm. um and children need to see their parents you know having some arguments but mm -hmm. 
um, and, and emotionally regulating themselves and then doing the repair work. The repair work is so important. And now saying all this is not to say that if you do, if you have experienced this or been exposed to this as a child, I mean, the beautiful thing about the brain is that we can change, we know now through neuroscience that we can heal our brain mm -hmm. through mindfulness, through meditation, through, you know, healthy eating, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and we can do better and with the knowledge and when we know better, we can hopefully do better. So mm -hmm. it's not all gloom and doom there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, and uh, I think anybody who has changed or evolved despite uh, adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, I think it's great if people talk about that. I think it should be more common and comfortable of a, of a social uh, conversation. That's one of the things I'm really trying to do with my podcast here. It's difficult to bring up my own personal experiences, but yeah, like I will say that I used to have anger issues to some degree. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure it had to do with many um, adverse childhood experiences, but that I've, I've genuinely resolved that. That went, uh, that went unprocessed. Right. Yeah. I suppose so. Yeah. It's, it's in difficult to actually like recognize this from a personal perspective, but yeah. I encourage listeners to really think about like what childhood experiences have affected you and mm -hmm. how you can watch for their effects and actually reorient your responses and your, your habits mm -hmm. that may have developed because of these uh, influences on you. Um, mm -hmm. So, and, and that brings us right to the next thing you were mentioning, which is, I guess, self-regulation. So, how would you, I guess, define self-regulation and, and why um, is it lower in some people and higher in others? Yeah, good question. So uh, it can be, so self-regulation is the ability to bring your nervous system into a point of parasympathetic. So parasympathetic is that rest and digest state and to bring your brain, the prefrontal cortex back online. Mm -hmm. Dan Siegel, who's a psychologist, has a great hand model of the brain, mm -hmm. just very simple. So it's just very simple neuroscience where the finger, you make a fist and your thumb goes underneath your fingers, your fingers go on top of the thumb. When you get triggered by something a partner does or even a colleague, so in any, any relationship really, mm. um, when something triggers you, we can use road rage for example, you get cut off in traffic and maybe that's a big trigger for you. Mm. You flip your lid is what we call it. And so that your fingers open up, um, you're no longer acting. So those fingers, sorry, represent the prefrontal cortex. Ah. So the prefrontal cortex goes offline, you flip your lid, your fingers open up, you're acting from that thumb, the amygdala, mm -hmm. the old brain, fight, flight, or freeze, which is our alarm center. Mm -hmm. And you're then going to either fight, if you're a fighter, mm -hmm. um, by yelling, screaming, right, Give, flipping them the bird, um, or some people shut down, so uh, fl uh, flight, which is, you know, some people just go inward, they can't communicate, they they avoid, they're avoidant of conflict, and that makes it really hard in a relationship as well. Mm. Or freeze, which is sort of like that deer in the headlight response, mm. uh, which is again, not neither of these things are helpful, but they were there for our survival purposes, mm -hmm. right? Um, when we can use breathing, become conscious of our breathing, uh, any kind of mindfulness technique, bringing in your five senses to help calm your nervous system down. It takes a minimum of 90 seconds for that prefrontal cortex to slowly come back online. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I say minimum of, minimum of 90 seconds, depending on how triggered you are, um, depending on how dysregulated you, you are and how much that experience impacted your nervous system. It could take you a whole day, right, to yeah. regulate. Um, different people, like so if you were someone who had a parent who was really, whose nervous system was very, you know, they, they get triggered really easily. So we say they have a finicky uh, lid that flips more easily than, say, say someone else, right? Because of whatever. So we're looking at intergenerational trauma right now. So whatever kind of childhood they experienced. And, and so that's partly genetic and it's partly, so it's partly nature and it's partly nurture, right? So for myself, I was a really colicky baby. I was born, uh, my parents are great parents. So I want to say that off the bat. They're, mm. they're wonderful people and, and they're, I'm close to both of them. But my mom struggled with anxiety. My dad struggled with depression. Mm. I had colic and was up screaming. My mom wasn't really, I don't know that they, either of them had the tools to keep themselves regulated mm -hmm. through my screaming, right? Mm. So, um, and then they divorced when I was three. So that all happened before the age of five. And that's a really zero from in utero to five is a really crucial time in brain development for children. So I, I tell my group that, you know, I'm someone who's very reactive and I have this nervous system that gets triggered a little more easily than maybe say, someone else in comparison to, I don't know, it depends who you're comparing yourself to. Mm -hmm. So when I am triggered, I need to work a little harder, maybe, mm -hmm. to bring my nervous system, my prefrontal cortex back online. Mm -hmm. Now doing yoga, meditation, mindfulness, I think over the years, I've been able to heal parts of that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still, you know, it's always a work in progress. I hope that answers the question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's all extremely uh, useful. And once again, it's it's unfortunate that I don't think this is a very common, I guess, just public discourse conversation. Even in schools, I, I think there are improvements, but uh, there's plenty of room for more improvement in terms I of agree. explicitly discussing things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So moving on from self-regulation, we meant you mentioned addiction. Uh, so how does addiction actually uh, end up uh, provoking abusive tendencies? So um, when we're when you're drinking alcohol or using drugs, um, you're basically your lid flips, mm. right? Yeah. So we're we're look back to this um, hand model of the brain. Mm. Your prefrontal cortex goes offline, um, and again, depending on who you are, maybe it goes offline for some people after two drinks and maybe others it's like five or six and mm -hmm. that can change throughout the course of your lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and so you say and do things, you maybe you don't think before you mm -hmm. speak, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and so you're in a more reactive state usually. So often um, people struggling with addiction who, you know, can't stop drinking or can't stop using, um, they're in a constant, state of fight flight or freeze so they're in survival mode mm -hmm. and they just aren't behaving in healthy ways mm -hmm. so we do like to point out in group that you know abuse doesn't come in a bottle so there's still 
even though you were abusive and you think, oh, well, you know, if I hadn't had those drinks, I wouldn't have acted that way. There's still that those emotions, that anger. So you brought up that you felt like you were an angry person. Mm. Um, I, I always like to remind the guys that anger is not a bad thing to feel, right? Mm. This is a human emotion. Mm -hmm. It's okay to feel anger. You don't want to stop. What you don't want to do is suppress it. Mm avoid it, avoid feeling it, distract yourself from it. So when we look at addictions, I mean, addictions, like there's this, there's, there's severe addictions like alcohol and drugs, mm. obviously, and we get, we get participants in the program with those issues. And I think that they need to be sober and be, you know, going to a regular support group like AA or NA or whatever works for them before they come to this group, because mm. it's not going to be useful this, our program is not going to be useful for them if they haven't done the work to be sober. Mm -hmm. um, but social media, I mean, come on, yeah. we're constantly distracting ourselves mm -hmm. from our feelings, mm -hmm. right? And just processing feelings. So easy to distract ourselves from things like anger. And a lot of men, and this is hopefully changing, and I think it is slowly, that mm -hmm. are raised in a way, and parents have the best of intentions, but when a little boy and sometimes even parents do this with little girls, they fall off their bike and it's not a big fall. And, you know, and they have a little scrape and you say, oh, you're OK, toughen up. It's OK. Don't cry. You're fine. You're fine. Mm -hmm. Because we're uncomfortable. We mm -hmm. get uncomfortable yeah. with those emotions that they're having. And we also want them to be strong and resilient. But really, if you want them to be resilient, mm -hmm. you need to be able to hold space for their hard emotions, mm -hmm. like crying. And often when we see a little boy crying, sometimes, depending on how we were raised, especially men, think, no, 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 you can't cry. That's going to lead to you getting bullied in the schoolyard. You're going to look mm -hmm. like a wuss. <laughs> This is so unhelpful because then boys are taught to, they can't cry and all that sadness turns to anger later, mm -hmm. yeah. right? It, you can explode because you weren't, you weren't made space of, you didn't have a healthy adult who could remain regulated in their own nervous system and hold space for you to have tears, mm -hmm. right? And then shame comes up as an adult. When you feel sadness or tears come up, it's it's accompanied by shame, mm -hmm. which um, and if you feel a lot of shame, then eventually you get angry at yourself. And it's this this downward spiral. Yeah, so it's so important to um, to really teach our, our boys that it's OK to cry, mm -hmm. um, to validate. So children need their emotions validated, especially mm -hmm. hard emotions. Right. Even adults need their emotions validated. So mm -hmm. in a relationship we talk about the importance of validating someone else's feelings. Um, like, oh, wow, that must have been scary when you fell off your bike. Mm -hmm. Your knee must really hurt mm -hmm. or, and comfort, mm -hmm. right? And, that's, and that allows them to, as soon as you get validation from someone else that mm -hmm. this feeling I'm having, even though it's intense and, and, and feels, you know, not a fun feeling, it's normal, it's yeah. human, it's mm -hmm. okay. So then you don't have that shame coming up mm. on top of the feeling, which is already hard enough to process. Yes, absolutely. Wow, really interesting looking at the dynamics of those emotions. Um, mm. I also, it, it strikes me, well, it strikes me when you mentioned social media there, that that's another one of those, uh, I think, sub, uh, subtextual or like uh, hidden um, 
influences on everybody right now. I I think almost everybody or most of the world is developing an addiction or already has an addiction to social media. I've certainly dealt with it myself. And there's this strange feeling when you're just trying to enjoy yourself on a day, maybe it's a day off and you're just relaxing and maybe you're with a friend or a partner and you have this opportunity. You're not working. You can just enjoy your time with them. And yet for some reason, you're craving to pull away from that experience of the the real world at that moment. And you just, it, it keeps uh, reactivating in your mind. So you're not even necessarily just uh, like zoned in on your phone, but even while you're trying to enjoy the moment, your mind keeps going, oh, why don't we check our phone again? And mm-hmm. that can be frustrating in this way that you don't even notice. It's just in the background, there's this noise, it's almost like background noise. And it's it's making, mm-hmm. it, at least for me, it can make me more agitated on a day when it should be the exact opposite. I'm I'm free to do whatever I want at this moment. So I shouldn't feel agitated by temptations towards not enjoying the moment right now. It, it's it's a strange dynamic, but it's one it's one that I, I I encourage listeners to really look out for. And this is not just social media, pretty much any addiction, any yeah. anything that you feel constantly craving for when you don't necessarily have any good reason to be craving it at that moment. Um, and it's yeah, and yeah. and the act in itself is not bringing you anything positive or healthy necessarily, right? Right, exactly. And it's taking you out of the flow, the flow mm-hmm. of being in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Yeah. Um. So I'm noticing the time here. I think I can mm-hmm. reduce what I have, what what I wanted to ask here, um, to about three questions. But I do okay. think it would be great if we can touch on culture a little bit. I know that is worth its own ginormous conversation, I'm sure. But uh, you did mention that it can influence abuse. Uh, I guess, um, how prominent is this is is a useful question. Do, do you do you see it surprisingly often here in Ottawa? Like a cultural uh, influence towards abuse? I mean, I think it's important just to know that abuse is not something that only happens to people who are lower class or, you know, anyone can be prone to using abusive behavior, Mm. right? It doesn't, but yeah, culture and belief around relationships and what's normalized, I guess, what, Mm. what was normalized to you growing up could be unhelpful. So no matter who you are, what culture, cultural background you come from, you want to ask yourself, you know, what was role modeled to me? Um, when it comes to intimate relationships growing up mm-hmm. and is that healthy you know were my parents in a healthy interdependent uh, mutual respectful relationship mm-hmm. right and if you're coming from a culture where you know the man is sort of the dominant figure in the household or there's some kind of power hierarchy mm-hmm. then you know that can lead to that is in itself, right? Mm. Um, somewhat abusive. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's difficult to speak about culture because everybody has their own culture and it, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. comfortable to just identify some culture that's a problem. And yeah. uh, more than that, it's complicated to look at because cu- culture doesn't necessarily affect every single person, but it's this larger scale influence on how people tend to behave within a large society. Um, I will mm-hmm. say that I've noticed in Russian culture because I'm I'm Ukrainian mm-hmm. and 
uh, Russian culture just doesn't talk about abuse, really. I, I mean, it's almost like a word that just doesn't come up ever. I mean, I've never heard it come up. Now, I don't, it's not like I talk to that many um Russian, like deeply Russian people. I mean, here in Ottawa, but uh, from what I've seen, it's kind of just like not mentioned. Uh, even if it's 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 coming up in a conversation, it doesn't really explicitly get talked about. So it, even that alone, if a culture doesn't talk about abuse, then it's not identified, and then no one's really pointing it out or concerned about it as much. Um, so that's one way this could happen. So moving on from culture. There are a few things I wanted to ask about. One thing is you mentioned empathy and and empathy is such an important tool to teach. So I wonder how do you go about uh, uh, teaching and explaining empathy in a rehabilitative approach uh, to um, the perpetrators that you deal with? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, we can't use empathy when we're triggered and our, our lid is flipped. So when we're working from our alarm center, it's impossible to use empathy because rational thought um, happens in the prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. right? So you're yeah. not thinking rationally. So empathy is, is entirely a prefrontal process, essentially? Yes, high mm. level processing. So you need to be able to emotionally regulate. So you mm. need to get that down pat yeah. before you can use the skill of empathy. Mm. So we explain empathy as the ability to try to understand what someone else is thinking and feeling. Mm. Um, and that's hard to do when we're in an argument, mm. right? Um, but we actually use empathy, and I, I, this is the wording I use. I say, I'm gonna teach you empathy as a tool to have in your back pocket um, and a strategy to de-escalate a situation rather mm. than escalate it. Mm -hmm. Because when we're reactive and we, when we're acting from our alarm center of the brain, we're our natural gut instinct is to be defensive when someone's angry at us we automatically jump to defense mm -hmm. and when we get defensive that can lead to further escalation of an argument mm -hmm. so what we need to be able to do is stop breathe calm our nervous system down and if we're able to show empathy and the three steps to showing empathy are active listening so using eye contact nodding your head and really listening rather than thinking about what you want to say next, right? Which is easier said than done. Certainly. Um, yeah. And then paraphrasing. So saying back to the person what you understand them to be upset about. So I understand. So what I'm getting is you're upset with me because I picked up the kids late from school, you know, two days in a row last week. Mm -hmm. So that must, and then validate their feelings. Like mm -hmm. I can see how that would be upsetting for you, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to agree with the person. Um, I mean, in that case, it's pretty, the example I just used is pretty <laughs> an obvious uh, mm -hmm. mess up, right? Mm -hmm. That you just want to take accountability for. But um, you don't, to show empathy doesn't mean you, you have to agree. You're mm -hmm. just showing your partner or your ex-partner who you're co-parenting with, super important. We look at how to co-parent in a healthier way for the kids. Mm -hmm. um, you want to show them that you're trying to understand and what they're thinking and validate what they're feeling, right? So mm -hmm. I, if you're thinking this way, is this how you're thinking? Is this what I'm getting? Oh, okay, mm -hmm. yes. And the reason you paraphrase is so that you're not there's no mis room for misinterpretation or miscommunication. Mm -hmm. That's why we paraphrase back. And yeah. then the third thing is asking questions if you still don't quite mm -hmm. uh, have a feel for what they might be thinking or feeling. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so this helps the other person's nervous system, hopefully, as soon as they feel seen and heard, because that's what people need in relationships. That's what we all need as human beings is to feel seen and heard mm -hmm. and understood. Mm -hmm. That is going to help their nervous system calm down. And the hope is that it leads to a de-escalation and room for a healthier argument mm -hmm. or disagreement to occur. Yeah, right? absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, it strikes me as you say that, that um, I, I think for some people, at least because I've, I've seen this in my own experience a number of times, there can be a little bit of anxiety that's rooted in not understanding, in, in feeling like you have to pretend like you understand exactly what the other person is thinking. And <laughs> that's okay. <I> <laughs> uh, so, and that anxiety is something you don't even realize is happening. It's very, very subconscious, but you feel like you have to pretend you understand the other person. Once you've dropped into this argument, you can't suddenly back off and be like, oh, actually, I didn't understand what you're saying this whole time because it feels like you're giving up on this uh, performance you've created. So, you're, you feel trapped in pretending like you understand the person. Mm. So, I find it helpful to uh, be really like exercise ex like exaggerated humility and be like, okay, you know what? Maybe I just don't know what you mean here. And I'm, mm -hmm. and I, and so just being honestly curious about what the other person is feeling. And yeah, that's way easier said than done. Way easier said than done when you're triggered and when someone's upset with you or an argument's happening. But if you can calm your nervous system and get curious about what's going on for the other person. Curious, curiosity is key mm. um, instead of defense. Mm. So in place of get, when you feel yourself getting defensive, notice it, mm. think I'm getting defensive here. Mm. Can I take this less personally? Cause it's, it's about them being upset about something and get curious about mm. what's going on for them emotionally. Mm. Now you're not responsible for someone else's emotional state mm -hmm. or to regulate someone else. That's their responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, but when you show that you're willing and trying to understand um, where they're coming from, then that's going to help you connect. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, Second last question I have. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Yeah, yeah. Go okay. ahead. Okay. The second last question I had was, so you you mentioned mindfulness quite a bit, and mm -hmm. mindfulness I can see, especially because I've been practicing meditation now for a good two years, and I oh, I can finally confirm that there really are fascinating benefits to it. It's very easy to be skeptical at first, especially in the early stages, because it feels like you're just wasting your time, and it's it's yep. so difficult too, but it once you do it really long enough and commit, it's really interesting to notice the benefits. And uh, I just wonder, um, are do uh, client do your clientele struggle with actually embracing this concept of mindfulness at all? Do they do they think it's BS? Yeah, definitely. They mm. think it's BS sometimes. So um, at the beginning of every session, I like to lead them through um, a breath meditation where we mm. just focus on the breath and. You know, especially when we're running Zoom groups, mm -hmm. you know, if I peek and I open my eyes a bit, I can see guys just not engaged at all and okay. they're not giving it a fair shot. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's that's out of my control. I can just tell them what the benefits are. Mm. Um, and and there are a lot who there's there are a lot of guys and we get a lot of feedback who say the breathing really helps me mm. like and I've used it outside of of group and um i'm so surprised at how much it's helping helped mm. 
So we get we do get a lot of feedback where guys who do use it are like want to tell us, you know, wow, the the breathe the breath work, the breathing meditations really helping. It's really helping me. So there's that, which is yeah. which is nice to hear. <laughs> I, I think the the general way I would describe it for anybody uh, listening who who is skeptical. Um, and the, and the, and to address even me, if I was talking to my younger self who is skeptical, I would say it's an incredibly useful tool to disrupt the power that negative emotions might have on your mind. Because if, and this can be any negative emotion for me, the biggest one would be anxiety because I've mm -hmm. dealt with anxiety a lot in my life, but I didn't even, first of all, I didn't know it was anxiety. I, I thought I had this weird, unique Danilo syndrome that was nobody <laughs> knew about. And then eventually I realized, oh, this is social anxiety or whatever. And then yeah. as I started meditating without even realizing it about a year into it, when I started feeling anxiety, it became this trigger to just become mindful at that moment. It was like, uh, it was like a, like a signal to be, Oh, oh, this is disrupting your focus right now. Let's just bring it back to the present right now, to the breath. And it was automatic. Mm -hmm. I never consciously did it, but all of a sudden it started happening more and more. And that's just one example. It's just suddenly you have this tool that will start just being used by your brain without you necessarily even having to, to do much when a negative emotion is about to take over your brain and, and make you have way less control at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of, it, it's, yeah, it's like the way I describe it. And I'm so glad you as a young guy are saying this and getting this out there because I think it's so important for guys, especially because they don't talk about this when they're as yeah, much maybe yeah. as women do mental health stuff. Um, but um, the way I describe it is you're creating space between your your thoughts and your true self. Well, mm. that's how I, I say it. So you're the observer. That's mm -hmm. the you. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts and emotions come and go. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to believe your thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, they're not who you are. Yeah. And neither are your emotions. They're kind of visitors. So the more space you can create, and that space is created through meditation mm -hmm. and things like yoga, mindfulness practices, um, the better able you'll be to not let allow those thoughts and emotions um, take over you. And, mm -hmm. and, and if they do, that's okay, too, you know, but yeah. um, to bring in self compassion with that, too. But that's how I kind of describe it to the to the groups. Yeah, I like that framing. And I, I've heard that framing from some Buddhists, uh, like mm -hmm. teachers, like this idea that you when you're not mindful, you are continually identifying with whatever uh, thing is happening in the brain. And if it's a, an emotion, then suddenly you're like, oh, I'm anger now. And you don't even realize this is happening, of course, but your entire perspective is angry Danilo now. And yeah. so everything you do comes from that. But that's not true. It's it's totally made up because your emotions just took control for a moment. Yeah, it's unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more we can become conscious and become the observer, um, the better able will be to emotionally regulate Yeah. too absolutely. when we get upset. Yeah. Okay. And I think, and it's so important for your listeners and that you've already said it, but is it, it has to be a daily practice mm -hmm. for it to really, um, and it has to be over time. And sometimes mm -hmm. you don't even notice the, um, the improvements you've made because maybe they're subtle, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But to trust in the process and to trust that meditation and mindfulness practices are so good for your mental health. It's like going to the gym for your 
for your body yeah. um, or exercising, right, is so important for our health, so is meditation for Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's exercised physically knows that there are significant periods where you feel like you're just wasting your time and it sucks to have to go and you really don't want to go. But when when you push past those precise experiences and you make it a consistent thing, uh, that's when the progress happens and you don't even realize it's happening until one day you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, wow, I I totally made progress here. And or you notice that you can lift something heavier or that's just all of a sudden you notice it, but you weren't really keeping that close of a track necessarily. Exactly. Um, So uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was how you navigate your job here personally. How do you, sorry about that. How do you avoid um, becoming emotional and and, and personally uh, upset with the individuals you're dealing with, especially you're dealing with people talking about sometimes their worst mistakes, like the the worst things Mm. they've ever done. And how do you not let it become this uh, critical view where you're you're very critical of these people and you might think they're actually bad people or something like that? How do you avoid that? I like to try to see them as all young boys (laughs) like like remember that they were children so Mm -hmm. i try to see them from a perspective of like the hurt child Mm -hmm. in them because i really do have a strong belief that we're all innately um good Mm -hmm. that's that that belief helps me Mm -hmm. um and i really i've made enough mistakes in my past and if done things that you know I'm ashamed of or so I really do relate to these guys I mean most of them and I I really it's really important for me for them to to sense that from me otherwise I can't do the work the the work the the group is not going to the healing's not going to happen type mm-hmm. of thing so um I'm lucky in that that comes fairly easily to me um and I recognize that that's not something that that uh, that everyone can do. So I'm I'm really grateful for the fact that I'm able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. That it comes fairly naturally. I, I really like that that sort of mental um, maneuver that you're describing there of imagining or, or re- recalling the the child version of of mm-hmm. the, your clientele because uh, I know that that has helped me enormously, and and I've noticed actually that it can help with pretty much any context of hatred or vilifying Mm, someone when you really want to think of someone as a villain all it takes is remembering that at some point they were three or four years old and there's no way if you met them when they were three or four years old you'd be like that's a villain in the making you it's just that's just factually unsound it doesn't make any sense it's it's totally illogical they're a three or four year old so uh everybody everybody is coming from that place even the the people who have committed the worst atrocities in the world have come from that place so everybody is a victim in some sense and everybody is a work in progress truly yes yeah you don't want to dwell in that victim state though and, and let that be your story yeah um because that's a disempowering place to be even when you are truly a victim mm. at some point um you want to to change your narrative and take control of your life yes right? and another thing i want to point out about the program is the focus it really is on accountability mm. and i've learned through the program that taking accountability 
you know, pride, ego, embarrassment, shame gets in the way of, of us taking accountability for our mistakes or when we mess up. Mm. But so it's uncomfortable thing to do, mm. but it's the, it's what builds trust in relationship and what builds deepens intimacy is, and it's a red flag if you are with someone who cannot apologize when they mess up. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to develop that skill if you want to have a healthy relationship and you want to look for someone who's working on developing that skill as well, because that's what builds trust. And also it builds self-worth. So when you do take accountability, the ironic thing is people have more respect for you, mm -hmm. right? When you're able to own your mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people can't do this and they, there's a, a big barrier of that shame that comes with it of mm. uh, culturally too sometimes it's just not something you do mm. you don't admit you save face mm. um and and so it's so important for people to know that it will build self-worth it's it's okay and it's human mm -hmm. to be imperfect and make mistakes mm -hmm. but it's how we repair those mistakes so it's owning the mistakes um, validating and recognizing how our behavior made someone else feel um, and moving forward and trying to to do differently, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really beautiful note to end on. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for joining me. I think yeah. this conversation is just so important and I really hope that education systems and public discourse start to embrace just making this a comfortable and important and, and recognizing yeah. it's an important conversation and just becoming more comfortable with it. Completely. I agree. It's mm. been a pleasure. So thank you so much for allowing me to get some of this information out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. Okay. You too. All right. Thank you. Bye. Now. Okay. Bye.